You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. I am Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money, our continuing conversation on all things women and money. I am fortunate enough to be able to wear many hats in my professional life. I enjoy every single one of them. I love being the financial editor for the Today Show. I love writing my column for Forbes.com. And I love being the financial ambassador for AARP. It is a relationship that I've had now for going on five years and has taken me around the country to meet people in various cities who want to get together and learn a little bit more about technology, about continuing education, about their personal safety and about improving their financial lives. And one of the most exciting things to happen to AARP in recent years is the dawning, for lack of a better word, of the Joanne Jenkins administration. Joanne is now CEO of the world's largest nonpartisan membership association. It helps more than a 100 million Americans, 50 and older, achieve health security, financial resilience, and personal fulfillment. And she is in New York with me today, Joanne. Welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here with you. I'm so happy to have you here in New York. And you are on a mission to disrupt Aging. That's the title of your new book, Disrupt Aging, A Bold New Path to Living Your Best Life at Every Age. Before we get into the book, and we will get into the book, I want to start with you. People know you now in a way that we haven't known other leaders of AARP because you are on TV representing this brand as the face of the organization. Tell me a little bit about your journey. I'm so delighted to be here with you you. to have this conversation because I think it's so important for women to not only own their age, but own their finances and think about how they need to plan for the future so that they can take care of themselves. But this whole idea of the face of AARP really came about uh, building out our plan for how can AARP be in your community, in your life every day, concerned about the things that you're concerned about, not just in Washington, inside the beltway of what we call it, and so that people could get to know AARP. And so part of that rebranding of who we are and how we're living our lives, which is so different than it was even 10, 20 years ago, was uh, people need to know the face of AARP. So I have to say that the staff convinced me that I should be that face of AARP. But it's been a uh, a journey for me moving into that role. It's probably not something I would normally do. But I think it's really tried to put uh, a face on who AARP is what we do, and that, you know, we're here to help you go through whatever it is you're going through in your personal life. 
every day. One of the things I like about the campaign is that you're calling it ARP. You yeah. don't you don't know ARP, and for a long time, if you said ARP, they said no, it's AARP. It was a huge. I think one of those I like to call this the new AARP, and that's part of uh, not taking ourselves so seriously that uh, it's okay. I think people call AARP ARP in a very affectionate way, and uh, for many years we took that as an affront to our organization, and I have to say that people are enjoying it, and, and I think the staff is as well, of, of sort of loosing the reins to say, it's okay. People people mean it uh, affectionately, and they see AARP in a different way. So. so you have decided to step up and say, we need to get in the way of aging. We need to disrupt it. What what does that mean exactly? Well, it, it came about as part of me coming into this role as a CEO. Uh, and much of the conversation that we have, uh, AARP has always been there fighting for you in your corner around Social Security and Medicare and all of those things are so important to us as we age. Uh, but it really was at 56, now 58 years old, uh, preparing to go out and talk about what AARP is and this whole aging, for me, it was, I feel great at 58. I'm excited about the work that we're doing. And all of my friends and people that I'm working with feel the same way. And so that turning 50 or 60 or 70 isn't what it used to be for our parents, our our grandparents. Uh, We're living longer and hopefully healthier as we age and that we ought to own our age and not feel uncomfortable or or feel like we're going to be discriminated against based on how old we are. And so that's part of how do we disrupt aging? How do we start changing the conversation in this country about the fact that it's okay to be a certain age and you shouldn't be defined uh, about what you can do based on how old you are? You, you talk in the book about getting all these cards when you turn 50 about being over the hill. And I, I mean, I know exactly that section of the greeting card aisle. Yes. And and having turned 50 myself, I didn't like receiving those one bit. And I've made it a point not to buy them for my husband as he turns 60 or my mother as she turns 75. But how do you reframe it in your mind? You know, okay, you hit a big number. What does it mean? Well, I think that's exactly what disrupt aging is about. It's how do you own that age, whether it's 50 or 60 or whatever it is, and feel comfortable with it so that you're not letting your own self-limitations determine what it is you can or cannot do. And I think that's part of the bigger problem is your discrimination against yourself that, oh, I'm too old for that, or, oh, I'm too old to wear that, or just thinking about, oh, I've, you know, I've always wanted to do that, but gosh, I'm too old. I'm too old to go back to school, or, you know, I would have liked to do that maybe 10 or 20 years ago. And, you know, people are living 20 or 30 years longer. Uh, so, you know, middle age is really moving from that 45, 50 to probably uh, 60, 65. If you think about after the age of 60, there are 10,000 people a day turning age 65, and that's going to happen every day for the next 14 years. Amazing. If you hit 65, you're, you're more likely to live to be 85. And so think about when Social Security was put in place. Right. Life expectancy was... 67, 68, and now people are living well into their 80s and 90s. Age 85 is the fastest growing age group in this country, and the second fastest is people over the age of 100. 
At age 50, you could possibly live another 30 or 40 years. Your book focuses on on three factors of life, on health, on wealth, and on self. Let's just break them down for people a little bit. As you think about staying healthy so that you can, A, get to 65 and then get to 85 and 100, what are the important things that you have to hit in order to maintain? Well, so on this whole health security area, what we're trying to do is to educate people around uh, the fact that if you can eat healthier earlier in life uh, and exercise continuously throughout your life spectrum, then you're going to live healthier in old age and that we can condense that time in which you're going to uh, be ill or sick or need assistance, uh, hopefully uh, in the near future for a couple of years rather than 10, 15 years. And the fact that 60% of our health outcomes are determined by how we live our lives, either around fitness and eating habits, 20% is DNA, and another 20% is the kind of health care you receive. So it's not genetic is what you're saying. It's not genetic, and you can control 60 to 80 percent of your health outcomes by the way you live your life and the kind of health care you receive. And so you're talking about things like walking. I mean, it's not that you have to go to the gym and eating more fruits and vegetables, you know, daily walks. Thinking about that at an earlier age so that when you do reach um, older age, that you're healthier and you're living longer. And so you're you're doing things that you probably didn't expect to do in your 70s and 80s and 90s. How about on the wealth side? I mean, one of the things that you said when you first sat down was that women owning their wealth, and, and wealth is sometimes an uncomfortable word for yes. people to wrap their brain around. But women taking control of their money, let's say it like that, it is key. What do we need to do to put ourselves in the driver's seat? Well, the first thing I always say is it's never too late to start saving. Uh, And that we as women in particular need to learn to start saving earlier, even if it's small amounts. So regardless of your the amount of income you have, that putting yourself first and thinking about your future needs uh, is an important thing to do. And so under that wealth, what we call financial security, uh, that hopefully uh, you're thinking about that future. Uh, You're not solely dependent on Social Security. You're thinking about your own personal savings. You, You are defining how you want to live your life in older age and getting people to start thinking and saving earlier uh, and uh, really getting involved in savings plans and teaching their kids how important it is to save and prepare. Uh, And I like to say not save for retirement, but but save for the things that you want to do so that it's your focus is on how do I want to live the next 20 or 30 years of my life, not how do I want to retire? But there's nothing wrong with retirement, but really focus on small steps to think, I want to do X in my 70s or 80s or whatever it is. Well, and in fact, that's the shift that AARP has been making. And as we talk about the third leg of that stool, the self-component, you've started another organization, for lack of a better word, under the AARP umbrella called Life Reimagined. And I was fortunate enough to be able to see a survey that you guys did with USA Today that looked at the percentage of people who said, I just want to shake it up. I want to do something different in the next few years. 
And it was huge. It was about 80%, if I have my numbers right. So what's Life Reimagined all about, and how do you reimagine? It really is, how do we help people through these life transitions? People are living longer. Hopefully, they're living healthier. They're planning for their financial future. But we're finding that most people, when they hit what was traditionally retirement age, that they don't want to retire. They want to do something different. So they either want to take a sabbatical or a break, perhaps come back into the workplace in a part-time role. Uh, One of the fastest uh, growing small businesses is with women over the age of 50. Uh, With this new gig economy and this shared economy, uh, we see a number of people over the age of 50 getting involved in uh, things like Airbnb or, you know, with Uber or, you know, some of these other kind of services, and that it is helping people through these life transitions, whether it's I'm getting a divorce or my kids have graduated from college and now they're coming back home. Uh, uh, you're uh, deciding whether to stay in that home that you've lived in for uh, 20 or 30 years or, or move and retire. And it, uh, Life Reimagine really gives a perspective for you to sort of think about what do I want my life transition to be? What do I want, How do I want to spend this extra 20 or 30 years that with advances in medical science or uh, in living healthier, you're going to have that perhaps your parents or grandparents didn't have. And and if people are looking for more information on, on making these sorts of life transitions, I, I want to remind everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is not only focused on, on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives, but If you go to fidelity.com slash it's time, you'll find more conversations like this one with AARP's Joanne Jenkins, but you'll also find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you are reinventing or getting married or getting divorced or starting a new career. And again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. I want to switch gears here and I want to talk about you because there are not many CEOs in this country who are women of color, who have risen through the ranks to run these incredibly large organizations. So as you look back on your career, what did you do right that (laughs) other young women can learn from? Well, I, I think I always go back to something my uh, my mother used to say, and she used to always tell me, you know, Joanne, you never really meet a stranger. One of the principal things that I live by is I try to treat everyone like I want to be treated. And so I think that that has been very good for me in uh, going through my career. I came to uh, Washington, D.C. right out of college back in uh, the early 80s. And so I've spent uh, a number of years uh, working in the federal government. Uh, had the opportunity to work for uh, four or five cabinet officers, one of my favorite, Elizabeth Dole, when she was Secretary of Transportation, who was the first female to head any branch of the military, which was the Coast Guard, to be able to do that. And so I've been very fortunate to be put in positions where people have given me the opportunity to lead, and I feel uh, very grateful for that. You know, I think about AARP, and AARP was founded by a woman, Dr. Ethel Percy Andrus, uh, and I'm the first female 
since Dr. Andrus to be the permanent CEO of AARP in 58 years when she started AARP. How's that feel? It, it feels great and it gives me chills at times because I think most people don't realize that she started AARP. She was the first female principal in the state of California and she went to visit a friend who was a former teacher who she heard had been ill. And she went to go knock on the door where the address she was given and they told her that this woman lived in the back backyard in a chicken coop. And she went to find this former teacher, high school teacher, ill, living off a $40 pension uh, and was in severe need of some kind of health care. And so that started her quest to go out and find group health insurance for teachers. And so she started not only AARP, but the National Association of Retired Teachers. And so after being turned down 42 times, they finally found an insurance company that was willing to insure retired teachers around health insurance. Over the course of the next couple of years, she was flooded with requests from other people saying, can you help us? And so, you know, many people say, why is AARP involved with in the insurance area? And I think uh, hearing that story about really trying to make sure that particularly women, but teachers had access to good health care uh, in the future. And all of those things fit together, whether it's around health, your health insurance or health care, your financial security so that we're not outliving our finances and really trying to find some personal fulfillment in your life. What strikes me, one of the things that strikes me about that story is the 42 doors that were shut in her face before she found an insurer that was willing to take on the challenge. I'm sure that through your career, you faced obstacles. Tell me about one of them. Well, I think that, you know, I worked, started my career at the Department of Housing and Urban Development, had the opportunity to work for the Department of Transportation and Agriculture before leaving, getting married and having kids. But, you know, I think back to those early days in my careers about how difficult it was to, you know, you were the only female in the conference room. Uh, you were probably, you know, the only, particularly for me, female and minority, uh, and, and how difficult it was to make those transitions about you deserve to be there at the table uh, to provide your input, uh, to be thinking about, you know, how we can solve problems for the country. Uh, and I think it helped me along the way of always uh, having uh, individuals who were, I like to say, a difference between having a mentor uh, and having somebody who is looking out for you, that, you know, uh, you you're there. They're your sponsor. They're a sponsor. Uh, that there is a difference between having a mentor and a sponsor. And for me, that sponsor is uh, allowing you to be put in positions that expose you to others so that they can see your work and that the confidence that those sponsors have in you to be able to do that. And I try to, uh, in my work today, constantly try to give back, uh, not only to all of our employees, but particularly to women in the workforce. Uh, we're fortunate at AARP that over 50% percent of our management team are female, uh, and that uh, not only the leadership team, but also the workforce. And so uh, that works out very well for us. But it's not the case uh, in many, many companies as we think about in boardrooms or in corporate America uh, and also in the nonprofit world. I'm sure there are women listening who are thinking, okay, I want to be sponsored by Joanne Jenkins. <laughs> so if I was a young woman in the workforce, what would I have to be doing to attract enough attention from you to become that woman? 
Well, I will tell you at AARP is all they do is、uh, email me.、Uh, but I think that it's well, that's you know, important. By the way, I mean, not every employee that you have, and you're going to be sorry you opened this floodgate, <laughs> but not every employee that you have is brave enough to、yeah. email you.、Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that oftentimes people, as a sponsor, will look out and see someone that they would like to sponsor. That's normally what I do. If I see someone,、uh, whether they're at、uh, my place of employment or others, and I、uh, I see them going through、uh, challenges or perhaps could learn from something that I've learned,、uh, I don't hesitate to pick up the phone or send them a note to say, "Hey, listen, I observed you doing this today. You might want to think differently about." How you approach that problem? I don't hesitate to pick up the phone to say, "Let me just give you some advice, and you can take it or leave it." But、uh, this is how、um, it's affected me in my career going up, and I think we owe that to other women to reach back and share that information because、uh, we're still not at a place where everything is equal.、Uh, and、uh, while we wanted to be that, and while we've made tremendous progress in this area,、uh, we still struggle every day.、Uh, and as you said earlier, there are not many female,、uh, particularly female minority CEOs of nonprofits or for-profit companies in the country. And I think that、uh, we need to continue to、uh, help each other as we move along this path. I could not agree more. All right, as we wind this up, I have. Been- Been very honest with the world about the fact that my favorite AARP benefit is the fact that when I go to Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> and I buy a large beverage, I always get a free donut.、Yes. Always, every time. They don't say you were just here yesterday. They say here's your free donut. So, what's your favorite? Well, I would say my favorite is on the travel discounts,、uh, whether it's、uh, buying an airline ticket or renting a car in whatever vacation spot、uh, we're in. I also use the the movie discount, where you go to the movies and you get a free bag of popcorn. So we have、uh, so many of our members as I travel around the country and talk joint AARP. Number one for discounts, and so、uh, hopefully people are looking at those discounts and、uh, that they're finding some that appeal to them. Well, I recoup my membership fees in free donuts alone. <laughs> so, Joanne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Kelly Hultgren is in the studio with me. She's been gathering all of your questions from Twitter and Facebook and our website. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Jean, and thank you to everyone for continuing to send us questions. It's our favorite part of the show. It's my favorite part of the show. You know, it's a lot of people's favorite part of the show. I keep hearing, which is which is great. We'll try to do some more shows that are solely dedicated to questions. I love that. And our first question comes from Sasha Nicole on Twitter. She's wondering: Can inquiries be removed from my credit report? So the good news is that not all inquiries actually hurt your credit report. You are allowed to look at your credit report to pull your own credit as much as you want, and people shouldn't worry that they're diving in and looking at it too often because you should keep tabs on your credit. It's a good thing to do. It's a good metric to be aware of. The ones that you want to minimize are what are called hard pulls or hard inquiries of your credit, and essentially. This is when you are actually going out and shopping for credit. This is why, when you're shopping for a mortgage, for example, you want to keep all of your shopping limited to a two-week period because then all inquiries during that time period are just treated like a single inquiry. The other inquiries, though, are soft pulls. 
if you ever get, and I know you do, right? You get credit card solicitations in the mail. Mm-hmm. Those credit card companies did a, a soft pull of your credit. They put out an inquiry against your credit. Those have a very, very, very minimal impact. They're not going to hurt you and you don't have to worry about it. So in general, as long as you're not out in the market shopping for credit frequently, inquiries are not something that you have to worry about. Yeah, I remember early on in the show, I received an increase my credit line Mm -hmm. letter from one of my creditors. And they said on the letter, not a hard pull of your credit, pull of my credit. Because and I remember asking you at that time. Yeah, they want you to understand they're looking for your business. They don't want to do anything to annoy you or to hurt you in any sort of derogatory fashion. But this is how they know that you are a likely candidate to be approved for this increase. It's also why when you get a solicitation for a credit card in the mail, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you will automatically get that credit card if you apply for it. Oh. They've done a soft pull of your credit, which means they've had a small look, but they've not had a big look. And when they get that big look, which they do when you apply for that card, they may decide that, oh, that 7.9% interest rate that we offered you, that's actually too low based on your past behavior. But Mm. hey, we'll give you the card at 14.9%. Those things happen all the time. Yikes. We have another credit-related question. We received an email from Laura. Laura writes... She has three credit card debts that are not charging any interest until 11 more months in a personal loan for 36 months at a fixed rate. Okay. She writes, I have a loan offer to consolidate my debt with no collateral. My question is, should I keep paying the minimum on my credit cards or should I consolidate the debt? Boy, it depends. And it depends on what the interest rate is on this consolidated loan. In general, when you've got a 0% interest rate for an extended period of time, as she does on those three credit cards, you want to use that time to make hay. You want to use those 11 months to throw all of your extra money toward those higher interest rate credit card debts, even though they're only at 0%, because they are going to revert to a higher interest rate. And you want to get rid of as much of that as possible while probably making a minimum payment on the personal loan. If if the if she thinks she can clear the credit card debts in the 11 months, there's no reason to consolidate them into a loan at which she would be paying interest. If the consolidated loan is lower than the personal loan that she's got outstanding, it's okay to do that kind of a swap. But again, one of my big fears about loan consolidation of any kind is that when you leave the other credit lines open, it gives you the opportunity to just go crazy shopping. Mm. You've got too much credit out there. And, And sometimes the credit bureaus pick up on that as well, and they'll take your score down a notch yeah, just be- for having them open. Just for having too much available credit oh. or looking for more credit. They think, oh, this is a person who wants to go shopping. Even if you're not using it. Even if you're not using it. I don't know exactly where the dividing line is, but there is a line between having a lot of utilization that's good mm-hmm. and having too much utilization that could be tempting and get you to spend more money. Do you freeze the cards? Do you cut them? You get rid of them. You get rid of them. You get rid of them. I mean, at some point, if you think that you can't handle the credit cards, you absolutely get rid of them. And if you're, if you're rolling 
three different credit cards over to a personal loan, I might figure which of the credit cards has the lowest interest rate for the longest period of time, keep that one, close one of the others, close the second one six months down the road, and really limit your availability to do damage to your financial life. That makes sense. Thank you, Jean. Sure. Thank you. And thanks, everybody, for your questions. If you've got questions, feel free to send them to us. We love them. You can get us at Twitter, on Facebook, and at jeanchatsky.com. Thanks, as always, for those questions. Keep them coming. We are going to head into our Thrive segment today. And at the risk of aging myself, I like to say that I've been making money make sense for over two decades now. But the number of sources that I have in my Rolodex, people, and I I don't have a Rolodex anymore, but I have contacts like all of you do, people that I call over and over and over again is pretty limited. But the guy on the phone with me today who is called the sketch guy by the New York Times financial advisor, Carl Richards, is one of those people. He, he's one of those people that I call again and again and again when I'm reporting a story because I know that I'm always going to get advice with the investor or the consumer in mind. I'm going to get straight shooting advice that either saves you money, makes you money, or more likely than not, saves you time. Because Carl is one of the first financial advisors I ever met who is really focused on behavior and why we do things with money that we know full well are not necessarily in our best interest. Carl's with me on the phone. Gene, thank you. That was so kind of you. Like oh. it's, it's, it's ama- well, it's amazing to have somebody you know, capture in a two-minute or one-minute introduction what you hoped your whole career was about. So thank you. In a recent New York Times column, you featured a sketch of, of one of your rules, and, and it was one secret to cutting spending, and that was to wait 72 hours before you buy. I, I've advocated waiting 24. Where'd you come up with 72? Yeah, I don't I don't know. If, if 24 is good, 72 is better, I guess. I don't know where I came up with 72, but that was specifically around, and I highlighted that in the column, around books. Because Amazon Prime, I would notice like, you know, I'd read a, a one-sentence review on Twitter with the Amazon link to the book, and I'd suddenly have to have the book. And Amazon Prime made it so easy, right? Like I'd click the link, I'd click buy, and two days later I have this book. And then one day I woke up and I was like, whoa, there's a huge stack of books that I haven't even opened in my office. So I started this new rule. I just built a new, you know, there's a new, uh, what's it called? A list, list in Amazon, in my Amazon account called 72 Hours. And the book has to sit in there for 72 hours. You should see how long the list of books is in there that I, you know, 72, the book I had to have, like had to have, 72 hours later, I've forgotten about. So that's what it's about. It's just putting yourself a little bit of space between the stimulus to buy something and your response of actually buying it. And I feel like if I still want it 24 hours or 72 hours later and I can afford it, I really probably should have it. But if by then, as happens in most cases, I've forgotten about it completely, then I wasn't meant to have it in the first place. Your 24-hour rule, what have you used it for? So I use it for online. I shop a lot online for sport, and I don't buy. I just look, and I put things in my cart, and then I leave. And 
the the great thing about leaving is that you'd be so surprised at how many times when you leave something in your cart, the website which tracks you through cookies will send you an offer to buy whatever it is for less. Right. Right. So I still have to stick to the rule, despite the fact that I I could now get it for fifteen or twenty percent off. But just. For me, it's just sort of sport, right? I go through, I find things I like, I put outfits together, I put them in my cart, I leave them in my cart. I never have to put them in my closet, which is great because I've got enough in my closet. And it, it's just a way of not acting on on impulse because like everybody else, I you know, I tend to get impulsive. So when you say sport, you actually mean that, like it's just for fun. It's just for fun. It's the same. I mean, it's funny. My my husband has a fantasy baseball team that he's been managing for the uh, entire season. And we both sit around with our computers. God, I sound like the most boring human being on the planet. <laughs> but we sit around with our computers and he watches his baseball team. And actually, he sits with his iPad and watches his baseball players do whatever they're doing on their assorted teams. And I go from J. Crew to Rulala and and put things in my cart. And then I close the computer and then I'm we- done. And I can, you know, watch The Good Wife and go to sleep. So if you had to package up the pleasure that comes from shopping, like from buying something, right? Okay, so you got this package and it represents 100%. If you go buy it, physically buy it, I mean, I don't care. You you buy it online and you actually purchase it. And that's 100%. What percentage do you think you're capturing through this little game of sport you're playing? Um, You mean what percentage of the things am I actually buying? No, no, no. What percentage of the pleasure are you getting? Oh, like most of it. Yeah, I know. Most like, of it. Like, like I don't like, need to have it and... and, and right. And I certainly don't need and I started not buying things because I was on this kick to not buy things on sale because I'm very susceptible to buying things on sale. And right. and so for the first three quarters of the year, half of the year, I bought nothing on sale. I had to wait. I had to buy it at full price if I was going to buy it at all, which made it hard to buy anything, which saved me a lot of money. That's awesome. But – you know, so, you know, I put things in my cart for, for fun. I mean, I like to shop in person for fun. I like to go look. I like to, I don't especially like to try on. I find trying on is a little demoralizing, but one of my previous guests, um, actually told me a, a behavioral psychologist named Sarah Newcomb told me that she has a rule that she doesn't go shopping for anything unless she puts on makeup and does her hair and looks great. Because at that point, she knows she already looks good. So the outfit's not going to make her look better. And so that's not the tipping point that gets her to buy something. Those are all so brilliant. Like, I love the idea of shopping for, I mean, if that's your thing, right? Like, if, if you enjoy shopping, what, how much of the damage that you do to your financial life could you avoid by just pretending it was a sport? I know. And saying, like, like that's really cool. It's a sport. It's a sport. Yeah. It doesn't cut any calories, unfortunately, unless you're <laughs> walking through the mall with your Fitbit, right. in which case you can get your 10,000 steps in there all at once. I want to come yeah. back to the sketches for a second yeah. because Carl has generously offered to give 10 sketches away to our listeners. So here's the way it's going to go. I want you to tweet me about your own personal behavior gap. I want you to tell us what's the behavior that you're looking to solve for, and we will get one of Carl's wonderful sketches to you. And you can tweet me at Gene Chatsky. What's coming next for you? So uh, we recently decided as a family to move to New Zealand. What? Um, We are moving August 31st to New Zealand for a year. 
And um, all that that entails has been amazing, right? Like we're selling stuff, having yard sales, getting rid of cars, you know, all of these things. And um, the adventure around – so what's coming next is we're exploring that adventure. Like, and particularly, Gene, this, this thing that keeps, people keep saying to me, like, I have always wanted to do that. Now, it doesn't mean – that doesn't mean New Zealand. It could mean I want to go visit all the national parks or I want to see – Florida or whatever, but this idea that we've always wanted to do these things and yet we don't do them, it feels to me like another gap in our thinking. And so that's what's next is we're exploring all the emotions around making a big change that you know would be good for you, that you've always wanted to do, but for some reason you haven't done. It sounds like there might be a book in that. Yeah, there's at least something, right? Some project that, that results in a souvenir like a book yeah and the kids are going along for the ride yeah yeah we're not leaving them home well, so we've got uh, yeah 17 year old going into her senior year which oh my gosh had... how could I... <laughs> the, yeah. my heart just sunk for your daughter you're taking her <laughs> away senior year how does she well, feel about that yeah gee listen she had she was the only one that of the of the kids that had veto power and so yeah i agree with you completely but this daughter is so when i went to her we went to her and said hey we're thinking about doing this what do you want and i mean what do you think she said did you just say new zealand (laughs) (laughs) she so this daughter is one of the most adventurous people i know and so she's she's really excited about it i mean we're all scared and excited all at once and what does it mean for work is this just because you can pick your work up and take it with you yeah, so I'll keep writing and doing the things I'm doing. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time helping advisors communicate more effectively and like be real people instead of walking jargon machines. So um, that work will only continue and improve, and and the writing for the New York Times will continue. I mean, I'll, I'll keep doing exactly what I'm doing. Can I just ask, uh, just to back up one second, when you decide to do something like this, what kind of financial prep has to go into it for all of those people who have said, oh, I wish I could? Yeah. Well, it's really important to understand. I mean, look, we've all seen, I I don't know if hopefully this metaphor works everywhere, but occasionally I'll see a brand new Range Rover Sport, you know, 150 whatever, $20,000 car with a bumper sticker on it that says need less. <laughs> and, and, and right. Like, and the, the, there, there's, there's a tendency sometimes for us to just pass off when people are doing something that we may want to do. There's a tendency sometimes to think, Oh, they must have a bunch of money. They must like, this is really hard for us. It's requiring real sacrifice financially. Like we're, we had to, we had to reorganize some things. So the answer to your question, financial prep, like we've had to look at everything. I mean, we're, we're selling cars. We're reducing everything we can. We're being careful about what storage units and what that costs. Cause of course we're coming back. We, we want our furniture when we get back, but we don't want to be paying $500 a month in storage unit costs. So it's really, really careful. And it's not like we had this giant buffer that would allow us to do that. It, it, it's, because we've been looking at other people who've done it and said, oh, there must be some secret, right? Like they must have, it must be easy for them. It must be. Now, I, I do realize, even in saying this, that I've got some flexibility. Many people don't. And that's with my, my like my work is location independent. But other than that, it's been hard to figure out. So lots of financial prep. 
Well, I hope that you'll come back and tell us about it when you get back or maybe even halfway through because with Skype, we could catch you anywhere. For sure. No, that'd be fun. All right. Carl Richards, thank you so much. And thanks for the sketches for the listeners. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Um, good to talk to you, Jean. Thank good you. Good to talk to you, too.